Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. On episode 321 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to get faster on the court with Coach Lee Taft. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I hope you're doing well and improving your tennis game. I've actually been practicing my serve every morning for the past several weeks now, and it's really been helping out a lot, just trying to retool my racket drop. It's been one area of my game or of my serve that uh, I've noticed has been a bit lacking and that is definitely a big contributor or taking away of power depending on the efficiency of your racket drop. So I've been really enjoying that process of just practicing from half core and then moving back a bit and then going to the baseline and making sure that my mechanics are correct. So that's kind of the fun part about tennis, you know, you just you find certain uh, deficiencies in your game, you work on them. In a lot of cases, it's, I mean, it's all cases, it's just a really repetitive process where you diagnose and then you find exercises that you can do and then you just keep doing them. And sometimes in a match, it'll be tough to fully implement what you're, you've been working on, but uh, gradually you, you get it. So fun stuff and yeah, really important. But uh, switching gears for this episode, we have an interview that I did previously with Coach Lee Taft. If you don't know about Lee, he's known as the speed guy. He's highly respected as one of the top athletic movement specialists in the world and has devoted over 30 years to training multidirectional speed to all types of athletes. And he's also been a strength and speed coach at the Boletary Tennis Academy uh, rest in peace, uh, Nick Balateri. Uh, he's also conducted workshops for MLB and NBA teams and consulted for NFL teams. Lee is also a an author. Uh, he's created tons of uh, of books and programs to help you improve your speed, strength, and agility. So really happy to bring you this interview that we did previously. And on uh, this interview, you're going to enjoy um, a lot of great advice regarding simple and effective speed workout that you can do, the best exercises to become a stronger and more powerful athlete, the biggest mistakes that we make when training our speed, how we can improve our lateral and multi-directional movements, tools we can use to get faster, how to divide our training on the court and in the gym, and much more per usual. So hope you enjoy this interview. And without further ado, here it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have 
Lee Taft on the podcast, and he is affectionately known as the Speed Guy. And I have to give a shout out to my friend Aaron Patterson for uh, opening my eyes to all the great work that Lee does. Uh, very impressive. Uh, he's trained so many different uh, facets of sports and so many high level players and coaches that uh, it's really great to have Lee on to just really help us learn how to get faster on the court and just become better athletes. So, uh, Lee, thanks for coming on. And- and I uh, really appreciate it. Oh, I can't thank you enough. This is exciting. I've been looking forward to it. Um, yeah, Aaron's a great guy. I'm glad he connected us. And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, opportunities like this, I never take light because I get the chance to learn and to share information and hopefully make it make something make sense for somebody out there. Yeah, well, thanks, Lee. I can tell right away that you're really humble, and uh, but you, like I said, you do such amazing work. So it's going to be really great to talk to you about this. Uh, and a lot of people, obviously, they want to get faster on the court, but they have no idea, you know, what to do. And so that's why we kind of brought you in here. So it's always fascinating for me to learn about how people first got into their profession. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, how you got into the world of uh, speed and also strength and whatnot. Yeah. So. I am the youngest of six in my family, and wow. my my dad, who's been he's passed on many years ago, but my dad, my two brothers were teachers, coaches, ads, administrators, they, everybody. My my two of my sisters were teachers, so I grew up in education. I grew up in coaching. I grew up in physical education. Um, so that was. And, and, and fitness, because they were all into fitness, especially my father. And so, you know, I kind of grew up around it, you know. And then I started in 1989 as a teacher, but I was also doing some fitness just on the side back then. And then in 91, I ended up at Boletary's Tennis Academy, which everybody knows now as IMG. So that was really my first big job in strength and conditioning. And uh, I went in, I went to another academy after that called Palmer Tennis Academy. And then I did a little bit with University of Kentucky men's team. I worked a little bit with them up there. And then I've worked a lot with, you know, athletes of all sports, but I've always been involved with tennis. And, uh, but that's kind of how I got started. You know, I, I, it was really, I was, I was a teacher, I was a coach and, and uh, it didn't matter if I was, if I was coaching basketball, football, track, tennis, whatever, or coaching strength and conditioning. It's still communicating, right? It's still teaching. So, but that's really how it started. Yeah, it's been, it's amazing. It's been you know, over 30 years now and uh, I feel like I'm just getting started. So it's been a good ride. <laughs> Love it. That's really uh, the best feeling you can have. Yeah. And I feel like you, you know, it, it reminds me of the book range because a lot of people who really do great things, they often have a lot of experiences across different uh, facets uh, of life. And so you were, you know, teaching in many different areas. And I think that uh, that really helped you just become the expert that you are today. But I want to ask you about uh, how you actually got into uh, that job at the Boletary Academy. So that was my, when I did my master's at the United States Sports Academy in Alabama, that was my mentorship. Mm -hmm. So I went there. I actually got offered a job really quick when I was there. I ended up not taking it because uh, just, you know, they were going to pay me like $13,000 for the year. And I'm like, (laughs) I got to eat, you know, I got to be able to survive. So uh, I chose to go elsewhere. 
to another category. But that's how I actually got there was because of a mentorship opportunity. And um, what was really neat was because I had already been a teacher and I'd been a coach, they recognized that quickly. So they put me in charge of a lot of the large group training, uh, doing things out on the fields and the track when these new groups would come in. And, um, uh, you know, because I had the phys ed background, I, I knew how to organize large groups. So it just gave me great experience, great confidence. And it was, uh, yeah, and it was a tough environment to work. You know, Nick Boletari, who was, you know, still in his prime then was a tough character to, to work for, but it was a unique environment. Yeah. Yeah. One of the greats. And I've had him on the podcast too. And he's, uh, he's one of a kind for sure. sure um, is. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, when you got to the Boletari Academy and, you know, as you went through it, what types of things did you learn specifically about tennis, you know, and speed that you, you thought was maybe very valuable and that you have carried with you and taught to others? Yeah. So I, I also was a tennis player. I played some college tennis and I played a lot of tournament tennis after that. Uh, nothing huge, but I, I, I was experienced in the sport. So I kind of understood the movements. But when I got to the that elite level and like Pete Sampras was big at the time he was there and, you know, Courier guys like that. And when you watch them play and move, you realize how vital accurate movement is okay we talk about efficiency and things like that but it has to be very accurate because their their time from response to ground stroke is so minimal uh that they can't make a lot of mistakes so i learned a lot about making sure that they um that they attacked space really well they escaped the space that they're in and they attacked new space really really well and I was like a sponge. I was the type when I had a break or during, you know, lunch or whatever, I would go watch. I would go around the courts. Uh, Mary Pierce was another one I used to watch a lot. And I would watch him hit. I'd watch him move. And I just took mental notes. You know, I was young at the time. I was, I think I was 25. And uh, I would just watch him move. And, and I realized didn't matter if it was you know the number one player in the world or a junior high player learning to play the game movement it was still the same just the quality of movement was different so so what i started to understand was the central nervous system was dropping these clues it was telling me something and i i just i was smart enough back then to not try to act like i knew everything i just absorbed a lot of things and i said gosh every time they had to react their feet did these certain things, but I noticed it with young kids, you know, high school level players, college and pros did it. So I knew there was something there. And that's when I started to create a lot of the concepts that I teach still today. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. And I mean, this very broad question, but what, what comprises speed? You know, a lot of people want speed, but maybe they don't understand like what makes speed. So can you kind of talk to us about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So if we go technically, technically, we want to be efficient with our limbs. Okay, so we can just say, you know, we have to be able to have our limbs collapse when we need them to be quick through from the back of the body to the front, we need to have them long when they need to produce force. Okay, so aside from that, what people misunderstand is speed in a sport, especially like tennis, has as much to do with perception 
reading, seeing it early, and then being able to move because I am sure you've seen players who you would say, gosh, that, you know, female player or male player gets to everything, but yet they're not the fastest players in the world, but they just get there. That That's the player that has great, what we would call the prediction model. Mm -hmm. They have that ability to see things almost before it's happening, but they notice certain angles, certain tilts, certain racket head positions mm -hmm. as it's happening, and that tips them off as to where they have to go. So speed isn't just Usain Bolt blowing people away in 100. Speed is the ability to be able to see, react, and then perform really, really early so that you're in position to make a play, and then the perception of speed is there. Yeah, I love that, and I'm sure a lot of uh, you know players who are a little bit older uh, love that as well because you know that's gives you a lot of hope that uh, if you can just be very proficient at recognizing and, and picking up upon clues, then you can uh, you know even if you're not the fastest, you can still get to the balls and anticipate and all that. So that's really good. I mean, what is that just repetition or like how do you get uh, athletes to actually improve upon that? I guess you could call it an anticipation yeah, area. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so again, if we were to look at a, a, a beginner, they they have a difficult time reading bounce, reading span, reading angles, reading where the ball is going to be. They're late. They're just basically late on everything, right? The more experience I have, I get rid of this conscious energy of having to think through everything, and I just start to subconsciously react and I can start to see angles better. I can see things and that's that only comes through repetition. I, I you know, there are some people that are just genetically gifted, right? And they just pick things up early and often and and you know maybe their mom or their dad were great at it and they just exposed to it. But most times the, the more exposure they get to having to react to their environment to perform a task, the better they get. But here's the problem. You know this. Most coaches and most athletes don't have the patience to train through the ugliness. Mm. Ugliness is when synaptogenesis, that's when the brain says, you know what? I'm seeing a pattern there. I think I'm going to start to build you a pathway. And if you keep showing that, that pathway gets cleaner and cleaner. So I think that's one of the biggest issues is we don't we, we want things to look pretty all the time. That's why we do ball machine drills and we, we tell them we're gonna hit 10 forehands and then we're gonna hit 10 backhands. And what happens is then we go play somebody that slices the ball at an angle and hits it deep in the corner and we don't know what to do. So experience and great players, great movement, great speed comes from repetitions and problem solving. The better you get at problem solving, and you only get that by exposure, the better you can play. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's very eye-opening. I feel like half the battle is getting people to actually realize that they can, you know, they can have a strategic mindset of like, uh, you know, picking up on these clues and, and still getting um, faster. Lee, from a more of a like, a technical and movement standpoint, what's the first step? Like, you know, let's say we have like a four or five tennis player, you know, pretty decent plays USA leagues and they realize that I want to become faster on the court. Like what, where do you start with these types of players to get them on that path? Yeah. 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 That's a really, really good question. So 
I am, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take a holistic approach first. I am very big on foundation. Okay. Just like the sport. Okay. I have to learn grip. I have to learn, you know, unit turns. I have to learn all that stuff. Same with movement. So I have seven patterns that I like every athlete to do tennis, basketball, baseball, whatever. And if they can establish these seven patterns, and they're basically acceleration, linear acceleration, sprinting, jumping, backpedaling, hip turn, shuffle, and lateral run. A lateral run is known to most people as a crossover, but I call it a lateral run. So if I can get an athlete to be able to perform those well, now I can get them to accelerate through those better and use those better. So if I'm a tennis player at the level you just said, a four or five, and I want them to be able to accelerate better, maybe out to a forehand or on an angle. Number one, they have to be able to produce enough force. If they can produce enough force and they can produce that force quick enough, they will start to create separation of arms and legs, okay? Rather than taking these short little choppy steps, when I grew up, it was always you take a lot of little steps, you get there and then you hit. Now the third step, we're actually into the stroke, right? If it's a wide forehand or backhand, we don't, we, we get there and we stroke almost through the step. And that, that's, you have to, the ball is coming so fast, right? So the ability to be able to accelerate quickly is force into the ground, the ability to use the arms properly and the, abil the ability to separate the two legs. So I don't want my two legs to, you know, stay close together. They, like my two thighs have to be able to get away from each other. That allows me to create force with one and prepare to create force with the other. Then they just switch. Doing drills like that, um, resistant type drills. So if I took, let's say you were my, you were my athlete, I put a band around you and I had you accelerate maybe three to five steps or, or, Maybe we could go 10 meters or something like that. Now I can start to have you work on those force production angles that we need to get you to accelerate better. So there's a ton of drills we can use, but it's about making sure posture position is good so that we know function can be better. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, is it possible for like for a player to to be able to improve their speed you know if they don't have a coach or is that something that you think is really really important like can they just watch you know videos or something like that and still improve or is it not the best way it's, it's probably not the best way if they have something that can help them is good but you know i grew up without people like us i didn't have a performance coach i didn't have a you know a strength coach and i got faster and faster because i ran you know, if you, you got to run, right? You got to sprint. You got to get fast. So even though, you know, when I work with tennis players, we still sprint. We don't just accelerate. I know tennis players are not going to get up to max velocity speed. But we, if, we can, if we can get a tennis player to understand, listen, go outside, start maybe your first two to three sessions going 10 to 12 meters and then start to build up 15 to 20 over the next couple of weeks and then eventually get 30 and 40. That ability, even though I know I'm never going to run straight 40 meters on a tennis match, that ability improves my foot strength, my ankle strength, my lower leg strength. Now that strength that I just built can also be used when I have to change direction, when I have to accelerate three steps to go get a ball or seven steps to get an angled drop shot. 
or a chase down a lob or something like that. So yes, they can do it. They have to get out and run. But even if they had like, we could say a coach or we could say a consultant, someone that just says, hey, when you're out there, just think about doing this with your arms, thinking mm-hmm. about this with your posture, don't overstride, get off your heels, you know, something like that, and then go to work, you know. So if they don't have a full-time coach, at least get some advice. That's the beauty of social media now. You can go on YouTube and find pretty much anything you want to to learn. You just got to be careful what you're finding, but you can, for the most part, find something that will help them accelerate. Yeah, beautiful. I love to hear that because, you know, you know, it's always kind of a question of like, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing these uh, drills, but, you know, is my technique okay? So it sounds like, you know, maybe you don't, even if you don't have like the best technique or whatever, you can still get faster by, you know, training by yourself and just making sure you're not doing any like crazy over the top type of incorrect uh, movements, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And technique is important. Mm-hmm. We know that, but the my one of my biggest pet peeves is when coaches don't let athletes run until mm-hmm. they get what they call perfect technique. Well, mm-hmm. you're denying an athlete the chance to get faster because sometimes the act of running fast starts to clean up technique. Mm-hmm. And as they get faster, they're probably getting stronger because the stress they're placing on bone on tissue, on ligaments, on joints, and that stress gets adapted to. And now all of a sudden, next thing you know, they start running better and their technique cleans up just because of need for the limbs to move the way they have to. Back when I first started coaching in you know 1989, I was in track, football, and basketball. So we did a lot of running, a lot of sprinting. We sprinted them. All right. We didn't you know, we helped with technique and stuff, but they just got better because they got stronger at it. And next thing you know, they became better runners. Love it. Love it. And so we're we're talking about putting in the reps and, and running and sprinting. Can you get strong like that and not strength train? In other words, uh, is it is it really important to to strength train as well to complement uh, your your on court or on track uh, work as well? I think it is. I think if you can get good quality strength training, I think that's important. But there's always going to be, you know, two sides of the story. What does strength training mean, right? What are we talking about? So I think running is a great way to get an athlete that has never done a lot of running, a lot of sprinting, we're talking, and a lot of change of direction. They're going to get stronger because of those stresses. Okay, so they're going to gain it. But then if you look at somebody like, you know, Nadal, Roger Federer, you know, uh, Serena, you know, players like that, just running isn't going to make them stronger. It may maintain some things. So they need to do strength training for them. It's not only to help performance, but it's to help reduce the potential for injury, right? But a tennis player needs to be able to have strength training that is, that is synchronizing movements. My biggest fear is that we think, well, you know, if we can get them to a 300, 350 deadlift, we know we can make them faster. I'm like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe we can do that. But if we got them to do a single leg squat with great control and gradually adding speed, now we've got them doing something that they're probably going to do a lot. They're going to lunge into a volley. They're going to reach 
for a wide ground stroke in a stretched out position where that one leg is going to take, you know, 90% of the body weight. So I think strength training has a different meaning than it does if I'm training an offensive lineman in the NFL, right? You know, they, they need strength because that's self-preservation, right? As where a tennis player needs the strength to be able to stay on the court to compete really well and to stay healthy. Perfect. So it sounds like doing exercises which kind of uh, incorporate or mimic some sort of movement on the court is generally a good way uh, to go, I guess. So how much do you mix that in? And, and I guess maybe, again, the focus will be on the am- amateur 4 to 4 5 player um, or thereabouts. How much do you mix the specific uh, movements in with like, you know, a squat or a deadlift uh, or, you know, does it just depend, I guess, on the person? <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It depends. Um, I think those are functional patterns. Everybody should be able to do well, right? Just mm-hmm. like I have my my movement locomotive patterns. I think in the weight room, everybody should be able to squat, everybody should be able to hinge, push, pull, all those things. Um, I would say for tennis, um, you know, uh, obviously racquetball and squash and badminton sports like that, I do a lot of unilateral training. Mm-hmm. And I'm not opposed to doing, I, I'm not one of these people like, oh gosh, if you put a bar on your back, you're going to get hurt. That's not me. I'm, I'm a fan of squatting and cleaning and all that stuff but i understand that um if i can get them faster if i can get them quicker and moving better and then use the strength to aid in that because i don't need them it's been proven people can be unbelievably uh, successful at the highest level and not do a lot of strength training okay that that can be done we've seen that i don't know that you could do that in football I don't know that you could be successful and, and, and handle that just because of the nature of it, right? And we're starting to see it in maybe even basketball. You, you better, you know, you got to be strong to handle the physicality of it. Tennis, through great repetition and great timing and sequencing, they can still stroke the ball well. They can develop timing. They can develop, you know, a great slice and touch and all that, even if they didn't lift weights. But we know if we lift weights, we can probably protect them better. We can give them the potential to be faster. We can definitely help them decelerate, which tennis is a huge deceleration sport. Every time I hit a wide ground zone, I have to be able to slow down. I gotta be able to get back. Every time I hit a volley, I typically have to be able to decelerate to a certain degree. Um, So that's where the strength comes in. And I think it's important though to understand, we don't need huge volumes of it. We just need to establish a stressor to the body, let it adapt, and then attack it again. But again, we can do that by or excuse me, we can go bilateral, but unilateral, we can get a lot of bang for our buck with a tennis player. Beautiful, love it. And so let's say, you know, somebody's listening and they say, Oh wow, you know, Lane Mirbon are talking and and you know, I want to go and and uh, run outside and, and get faster. And I also want to strength train as well. So I'm wondering it, with that gym component, you know, whether you're using weights or, or, or not, what is the ideal, uh, you know, set and rep range like, and, you know, relatedly, you know, are we, do we want to train our strength? Uh, I know you, you wrote an article recently about, um, you know, lifting heavy to get fast. And so I was wondering about like the type of workout and specifically do we want to train for strength first or power or you know do we want to follow this 
you know, four weeks of strength and four weeks of uh, power or what's the best way to go about that? Yeah, that's that's always a, a tough question because I've had really good results doing it multiple ways. Mm. And my decision is based individually, right? I, I've had athletes that I know came to be very stable, very coordinated. So I could, not that I skipped steps, I went to the step that it was appropriate for them. But typically, if we wanted to just play it safe and get good results, let's build a foundation of strength in in an effective movement pattern, okay? So let's, I don't know, we could say four weeks. We don't know that it's only gonna take four weeks. We don't know that it might take three weeks, whatever. But if I can make sure they understand how to squat um, and, and how to start to handle load, and how to be able to manage the, the, the results of a strength training session, which is going to be soreness and maybe some stiffness for a couple of days, right? Once we get through that and we start to build a requisite level of strength, then we can take that strength and we can start to play with tempo. So I could do some isometrics. I could do some eccentrics. I can do things like that. But I'm a real big fan of making sure they have the component of explosive movements all the time, Mm -hmm. even as a beginner. So I don't have to load them heavy. I can go light. I can go down slow into an eccentric uh, uh, rep, but then explode on the way up because I, I, I just think it's too vital that we synchronize timing of movement. When we make everything slow, even though we're getting a nice response, like a nice tissue response to that slower eccentric or isometric movement, still, I need my players to be able to have timing and speed of that timing. So I make sure we have speed right off, okay? I just control the how much I do. Now, sets and reps. I'm real big on, I would rather stay in like, the six to 10 range, maybe early on, because if I go six to 10, I know they're not going to go too heavy because they're just not going to be able to do that much if they have to get to that rep range, right? So that's a pretty good six is going to give me a pretty good strength response. 10 will give me a somewhat of a strength response for that particular athlete, but I'm going to start to build a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, muscle hypertrophy and response that way, which can be beneficial. Um, and we're not talking about big boxing or big uh, bodybuilding muscle. We're just talking about building a more resilient tensile strength of the muscle. Then I like to get into like, I like to get my athletes into like four to six sets of anywhere from three to five reps. So I like to hit that range. So I know I'm not going to put too much damage on the tissue but I know I'm gonna get good speed. I know I'm not gonna have too much residual soreness after that. And I can still get some good quality strength, but I'm starting to build some power at that range as well. And I'm not afraid to go heavy, but a lot of times going heavy might be like a single leg, you know, rear elevated split squat with dumbbells. So I've I've reduced some potential, you know, loading, not being able to squat really well. But single leg, I can do it and really get a great response out of that. Love it. That's fantastic. And I know you mentioned that it's it's kind of different for different uh, individuals. But when you mentioned those two different kind of uh, rep ranges and associated weight, is that something that like sometimes you'll just have those uh, in the same week you, you kind of uh, alternate between those? Or do you kind of have it in like, 
you know, four weeks of that and then four weeks of the next range. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty big on wave loading, which for the listeners would mean I may have, um, let's say we did a Monday, Wednesday, Friday sequence. We may start out at like eight reps. Then we may go on Wednesday down to that five, six range. And then on Friday, we may bump up to 10. And then the next week we go right back. So we kind of got this wave action going on so I can get a different response. Mm. I can control um, the amount of weight that's being lifted. I can control the speeds that I want based on how many reps I'm going. And if I'm typically up to that 10 range, I reduce my total number of sets. If I'm down around that five or six, I might bump up the sets a little bit to still get a little more exposure. Got it. Great stuff, uh, Lee. So um, when you encounter tennis athletes, what are maybe a couple of things that, you know, when you see them training or doing certain things, you think, gosh, like this is a huge mistake. And, and maybe it's something that you've actually have seen a pattern of. Um, just curious about if you've observed any of those types of things. Is there any particular type of training? Are you talking about like weight room training? Or, oh, yeah. Or Sorry, I should have. I should have specified. I would say either either the the speed and agility training or the the weight training. Either one. Okay, so I'll, I'll actually touch on both real quick. Mm-hmm. So the the speed and agility when and this is really really big, especially when I early days when I was in the in the academies, is they like to send them on miles. They like to mm-hmm. send them out for long runs. Mm-hmm. I was never a big fan of that, not because I'm afraid of long running. But because, number one, they take a tremendous pounding all day. They play a lot of tennis. It's a lot of work. Distance running is a very um, heavy foot um, contact where they have to uh, use more muscular energy. Sprinting is very elastic. It's almost free energy in terms of the response off the ground. There's stored energy in that Achilles tendon and the muscle and it responds really quick. When I jog, most kids jog on their heel and flat foot. So there's a lot of absorbing, there's a lot of weight there that transmits through the back, through the hips, through the knees, and then obviously the ankle and the feet get it. Not to mention, there's not a lot being learned, okay? If you're gonna run, run with some speed, some technique. And if you want to go intervals to get some conditioning, that's fine. But at least you can train the turnover. So that's one area that I don't like to see tennis players do a lot. If you want to get conditioning, I'd rather put you on a slide board or maybe a, a, a lip, not an elliptical, but a uh, airdyne bike or something like that where we can get some good work in and but not pound you. Now in the weight room, um, you know, some of the big issues I see is just doing so much front side dominant movements, a lot of, uh, you know, even push-ups, bench presses, which are great. There's nothing wrong with it, but that becomes the predominant movement. And we know it just doesn't, it doesn't create, um, it doesn't create the, the structure that we want at the shoulder joint. Uh, it can change our thorax position. It can have an effect on the rest of the body if we do too much of that and we don't back it up with some pulling work and some some work on the backside to keep those shoulder blades and and the shoulders and the arm and the socket where it should be. So that's a big mistake that I see a lot of players because if you look at especially some of the young guys, 
you know, with their shirts off. They want to look good, right? And who can blame them, right? They want to look good. The problem is they jack up their shoulders and their neck and everything else. So those are a couple of things that I see. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, that's fantastic. It doesn't sound like that would uh, be so great for a tennis player to have that type of body. Um, So, Lee, you know, when I've asked this question to, you know, the fitness experts, uh, it's, it's kind of tough for them. Um, but I was curious to ask you, um, you know, maybe like some of the better exercises in the gym first and then maybe later about uh, speed, but like, you know, so I was thinking maybe like, would something like a Bulgarian split squat or lunges, uh, you know, which are like pretty much unilateral, uh, are there any other ones that are are good, really good for us to start out with if we just uh, we don't lift much and we want to actually start to get stronger to help us and get faster? Yeah, absolutely. Those first of all, the ones you mentioned are great. Um, there's a there's a squat technique that I use a lot. I I learned years and years ago. It's just called a military squat. So imagine putting your left foot flat on the ground and taking your right toe and putting it right at about the level of your left heel. So you're basically a heel-toe relationship, right? So I'm in like a mini, mini, mini lunge, okay? I just got that foot right behind it, but really all the weight is on my left leg. And you squat straight down. So you're basically doing a single leg squat, but you got that right leg, which I like to call is my kickstand, okay? Can you visualize what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are phenomenal, and here's why. It's, it puts tremendous load on my, my quads, my hips. Obviously, I'm going to get hamstring because I'm going to pitch forward a little bit at the upper body, which is going to load the posterior chain. But you have to keep your foot flat, so your knee is going to drive forward a little bit. So I actually get to work the mobility of the ankle joint. I get to work the hips, the, the knee flexors, the hip uh, extensors, all in the same movement. And it loads that single leg quality really, really well. So now if I take a kettlebell, a dumbbell, uh, I could just take a plate, okay, just like a 40-pound plate or a 20-pound plate, 25-pound plate, and just hold it, right, like a goblet, and squat. That is a really nice load. You can use bands as well. That's one of my favorite exercises to use because it's single leg. I don't need much. I can do it without holding anything, and if I slow my tempo down enough, it is tough. It's a very, very tough exercise. And it used to be done in the military. That's where it came from. So I really like that a lot. Um, again, for lower body stuff, I am really big on, it's a hybrid single leg RDL with a squat. So you, you typically when we teach an RDL, we it's very hip dominant, very mm-hmm. hinge dominant. Well, I include some knee bend, but I get a big forward lean of my upper body. So I can really load hamstring and glute timing, but I also get some good quad. And then we come up out of it and I just like snap myself up out of it. So I squat bend, come back out of it. Those are really, really good. Again, I can just use a band, a a 
kettlebell is something to hold on to. So I like those a lot as well. And what I like about them is I can tell, I can tell players, look at, you can do this on the tennis court. Before you're going to go play, you can do a couple reps here or a couple sets here. It gets you good and warm. You get a little strength response and you can do it right out there. So that's one of my advice I'll give to coaches sometimes. I'm like, look at, you don't have a weight room. Just bring some bands and things, do some things out on the court, but do some single leg stuff. That's how you can get a strength response from them. And then lastly, I'd mentioned bands. I'm a real big fan of using bands because they're easy, they're low cost. If you have a gym, by all means, use your Kaisers and your cable machines. But if you just have tubing, you can attach it to a pole, to a fence, you can attach it to your door handle, and you can do unilateral rows in a parallel stance which will challenge the core more. I can go in a split stance, unilateral rows, which now I'm getting a little bit more rotation and torque and spinal and pelvic control. So exercises like that are so easy to do, but yet you can get a big bang for your buck out of them. Wow. So I'm, I'm really excited, Lee. You know, I love working out and now I have a bunch of things, uh, exercises to, uh, to add. So I'm, I'm really excited. Awesome. Especially so- now with COVID, right? When, when, People don't, my, my advice to people right now is look at, go to Walmart, you can get a band, you can get a kettlebell, you can get a dumbbell for really inexpensive. You can even buy a stick, a roller, if you want something to roll out on. You got stuff right there, you can go home and work out in your garage or in your apartment or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. I, I've been, uh, you know, adding some, some things to the, the gym here. Uh, I call it a gym, but it's small, you know, I've got adding some weights, a uh, bench, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's great. But I mean, as you've shown, you know, you can do with minimal equipment, even, you know, no weights, you can do a lot of these exercises. So, uh, love it. So Lee, now kind of going back to the speed training, um, you know, maybe to give, uh, and I know everybody's different, but maybe to give mo- like the majority of us uh, li- like a simple template to say, uh, okay, the next time you go out on the court or, or a track or wherever, um, just do these whatever, three or four exercises. Uh, you know, it's like a, just a, a simple workout that maybe we could do. Uh, do you have any suggestions for us? Awesome. Yeah, I certainly do. These, these will be great to do, simple to do. If you're on the court, they're perfect. Exercise number one, we're going we're gonna to take advantage of now. And so I work out early on. And all I want you to do is stand on the outside sideline of the doubles alley. And you're going to do a, a, a standing broad jump. And you're going to jump over the alley. And you're going to land and you're going to walk back. And you're going to just take a quick rest and you're going to repeat that three times. Then you're going to come back and you're going to do it three times with the right leg, but you're landing on two feet. We want to be safe, but we want to develop single leg power. Then you're going to do it on the left. So we got our power work done. We we warmed up, we got loose, and then we did our broad jump. So we, we produced a lot of power. Now we're going to sprint. We're going to go back to that doubles. We're going to go right to the baseline doubles alley corner. So we're going, it's basically like 36 feet from doubles to doubles, right? The corner. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to get our sprints in. This is what I call the tennis speed test, right? So we go from corner to corner and it's about 10.9 meters and you're going to sprint that and then you're going to walk back and you're going to do that again, but you're going full speed 
maximal speed, but you're only doing it a maximum of four times mm. because you're trying to maximize the speed. Okay. And we're not, we're not trying to do endurance right now. We just want to get as fast as we can. It's going to be the exposures over the next three to four weeks. And you're going to see yourself getting faster. The next exercise you're going to do is you're going to get, we're going to stay with the doubles alley. You're going to get outside the doubles alley completely. And you're going to face the, the well, you're facing the net, but you're outside the net because you're outside the complete doubles alley, right? And you're going to shuffle. You have to shuffle across the alley, okay? Just think of a basketball player shuffling laterally. You're going to shuffle all the way across it until you get both feet inside the singles line all the way. And then you change directions and you go right back out. You're going to go over and back four times. Okay. That's the lateral. We call that the lateral volley quickness. Test, okay? mm. So you're going to go as quick as you can across that, that um, alley. That, that's, uh, uh, now we got our lateral stuff working. Then what we want to do is we want to go to the net. I typically measure this at nine feet off the net. So you could literally walk it off, nine feet basically. So you're not quite in between the service box and the, the net, but you're close, right? And what you're going to do is you're going to face the net. And you're going to, you're going to turn your feet in what we call a hip turn. You're going to turn as fast as you can and sprint straight back to the baseline, right? Do you get to the T of the baseline? You're going to do that twice, turning to your right, just like you're chasing a lob. And then you're going to do it twice, turning to your left. So, and that's about 30 feet. So it's, it's not, it's not extremely far, you know, it's, but it's about, it's about 30 feet. Um, and, and you're going to do that. You're two times on each side. Okay. Now the last one I want to, uh, I, I would love for you to be able to do and the listeners to be able to do it. You just need to get, four cones okay about nine inch cones okay they're, they're they're not the real big ones but about nine inches and we call this a cone stack drill okay so you're going to take them and you're going to place them out one you're going to take your one cone and put it outside the uh doubles alley okay just put it right on the line and then you're going to walk in you can walk in maybe about four yards something like that or four meters and you're gonna put the other three cones right next to each other. So they look like this, one, two, three, right next to each other. You're gonna start at the other cone, the first cone. You're just gonna run, pick up one cone, bring it back and stack it. Go get the next one, bring it back and stack it. Get the last one and stack it and see how quick you should can do that. You should be somewhere in between seven to 10 seconds, depending on how fast you are. And you do that on the right side and then get on the left side and do it from that side as well. Those are the things that I give people to do all the time on the court. They're easy. They build power, speed, lateral change of direction. And then you can have some fun with that uh, cone stack, drill, which is a great change of direction. Wow, Lee, this is awesome. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners do too. And, you know, obviously I'm sure people are going to be rewinding right now and listening to it again to <laughs> make sure they get everything. That was um, so, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. no, no, it's, it's great though. You know, really <laughs> simple and, and fantastic. So, I mean, you know, when when we think about things like the the spider drill and like longer type sprints, like, is that something that we shouldn't really be doing until we get, you know, these like shorter explosive drills down, or do you sometimes sprinkle them in every now and then? Yeah, no, I think you can do them anytime. I think okay. it can be used as a, 
as a barometer for how you're doing. How are you improving on that? Um, how is your endurance to be able to stay quick all the way till you get to the very end of the star drill or the spider drill or whatever one we choose that has a little bit of duration to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think I think they're good. Um, I think what we want to do is we want to be able to establish a model of what it looks like when we get to the point. So whether it's getting to a cone or, uh, you know, whatever line intersection we're getting to where we change direction, what does that look like? What should it look like? How should my foot position be? And how should my shoulders be? Because my biggest problem with some of those drills is tennis players run through them and they're really sloppy on their change of direction. So if I'm moving out for a wide forehand and I hit an open stance forehand, my right foot, in my case, because I'm a righty, would be facing, you know, probably about 45 degrees out towards the, 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 the bleachers, right? The mm -hmm. sideline. But after I do that, now my foot has to turn sideways so I can now push off it like I'm doing a shuttle run and come back in. So if we use these star drills or spider drills, I like to make sure the athletes understand what does the model of change of direction look like? And it's very simple to teach. It's just making sure our foot is sideways. It should be perpendicular to the direction we're going. So I have a nice big foot plant to change direction. It would it'd be no different than me teaching somebody the model of a kick serve or the model of a, of a high backhand slice return, right? There's a model there. Not everybody's the same, but they're within that model framework. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Appreciate that. Kind of a very technical question. Um, but you know, when we're doing, uh, the shuffle, uh, how low should we be to the ground? I mean, I remember, you know, doing this with instructors and some of them are saying to get like super low, like a, you know, 90 degree squat type of thing. And so I was just curious, you know, what, what the general guidelines are for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one because <laughs> The reason athletes like to stay tall and you in tennis, uh, oh my goodness, when I was at the tennis academies, all you hear was like, bend your knees, bend your knees. Now the problem is relative strength is important and genetic uh, predisposition to elastic energy is important. So for example, what does that mean? If I've worked with athletes that if I get them bent too low, if they go much more than 45 degree knee bend, which isn't that deep. Okay. It's not a, it's not a tremendous amount of depth, but if I get them much below that, they slow down because they're very elastic by nature, which means they don't want to use a lot of muscular power. They want to use elastic energy, which is quicker. So when a tennis player is moving laterally or they're getting ready for their split step, the shorter they make themselves, the more knee ankle and hip bend. Well, now they got to come out of that ankle, knee, and hip bend mm -hmm. a long ways. That takes more time. That's a powerful muscular action. I don't want that. I want elastic, quick pop. I want them in and out. So the depth that we get them at is very individualized. Now, for me, I'm not very tall. I'm 5'10". Um, I played college basketball. I played tennis. I was very comfortable. Like, I have short, not very long legs. So. I was comfortable getting pretty low. Plus I had really strong hips. I could move mm. low, but it wasn't because I was completely squatting. My legs were wide. So 
if my legs are wide, my knee joint still wasn't bent a ton. Mm. It was just wide. And so when I struck the ground, I struck the ground with a fairly straight leg and I still used elastic energy. But coaches would say, yeah, you're nice and low. Well, yeah, it was low, but my feet were wide and I had the elastic. It wasn't like I was down doing a, like a front squat position, right, where you're really compact. So mm-hmm. coaches make a mistake. Sometimes they slow their players down. I have a player that worked with me. She's a Division One player right now in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And her coaches to tell her to get low all the time. And I explained to him the science behind it. And surprise to me is he actually said, I never thought of it that way. And it actually made sense to him. And he never asked her to get low anymore like that. And she started to move it. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. I'm glad that that coach uh, had his uh, mind open to, to learning things. Definitely the key to, to growing. And yeah, uh, but that reminds me of um, Dr. Mark Kovacs, uh, who, you know, obviously a great expert in this, this type of uh, field. And he mentioned, uh, you know, on the serve, a lot of players, like sometimes they're just bending way too low and then they don't have that uh, elastic uh, energy to, you know, bounce back up and, and explode into the ball. So you don't necessarily need to, as, as Lee has just said, you know, overbend. So it's great there. Uh, Lee, you know, another question of uh, numbers based, I guess, is I'm curious of optimal or, you know, just a general guidelines on how do we partition, you know, the, the ratios of like tennis practice to then, you know, on court or track, um, you know, speed and agility training, as we had just talked about with those, you know, exercises. And then also like, training in the gym like do you have any sort of uh rough uh you know ratios for that or guidelines yeah i if 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 i were everybody's different every situation is different but if i were to say a guideline this is what i would like to see i I'm, i'm a huge fan of sprinting and i know in the tennis arena um it's not as well received always because they're like well we don't sprint i'm like i don't want them to be great sprinters i want them to use sprinting to benefit their movement on tennis so i would like to see tennis players sprint twice a week but again we're only talking three to possibly five reps not a lot i just need a maxed effort so that we're getting a response from the ground okay so that's that's number one that's only taking a really small amount of time. The strength training, again, I am very fine with a strength trainer, uh, a tennis player strength training twice a week. If we get three, good, but I don't know that we always need it. I think they need exposure to it. I think they can get a lot of benefit from it, but I would be foolish as a strength and conditioning coach to think I'm more important than the play of tennis. They're, they're, they're tennis players. They're not coming to me to become great at strength training or to become great at sprinting. I'm using those tools so they play better tennis. So I wanna reduce my overall percentage of time training, and I want them to be able to have time on the court, time on the you know uh, matches or whatever. But having said that, I'm not a huge fan of like three hour practices and four hour practices. I think they need to be sharp, really good break. And then maybe if they want to come back later and work on another skill set, that's fine. So in terms of numbers throughout the week, so if we took seven days, I would like to see two days of of speed work, 
two days of strength work, and they can be on the same day. I have no problem with that. And then the other days of their tennis work, I just think they have to reduce their volume of overall tennis practice because I think they hit so much that they never have the chance to optimize performance because they're always in recovery mode. They never get out of recovery because they constantly go back. So I don't know if that was an exact answer in terms of percentage, but that kind of gives the listeners like, oh yeah, that's not as much as I thought he would say. They probably thought I was gonna, no, I, I, and here's the other thing, and you know this, tennis is lateral movement. It's quickness, it's excel- so they're getting it. I can just refine it. When I get them, I can just fine tune those skills and like, hey, go back, move on the court. I'll, I'll help fix it, but I don't need to give them a ton of volume. I just want them to get fast. Love it. Um, this is uh, extremely helpful, obviously, for not only just because you're, you know, guiding us on the, you know, percentages and exercises, but also uh, it it kind of calms people in the sense that, you know, when when things feel like they're ton of work or overwhelming, then they tend to not, you know, venture into doing those things. But, you know, you're basically telling us that, hey, you know, you can keep tennis as a priority and, you know, you're not going to be strength training and sprinting, uh, you know, five days a week. It's something that you want to even just prioritize tennis and then use these as, as tools to help you play better. And it can only be, you know, a couple of times a week for each of those. So that's, that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and you know what I would say is let's say, I'll give you two examples. Let's say they were in season. Mm-hmm. This could be a high school player. You know, the professional's always in season for the most part. Um, but in season, maybe you sprint once a week and you do it once every like seven days. Mm-hmm. You know, the, everyone, once they warm up really good, anybody can give me three 30-yard sprints. Okay, that's not going to be very taxing but their central nervous system is gonna say, I like that, that's good. That keeps me sharp, keeps me fast. They, they are not gonna be, get, they're not gonna get slower, they're gonna get faster, or at least, if anything, at least maintain, but ideally we wanna get faster. And then the strength training, if we can get that in a couple times a week. Now, if they're off season, let's say we're, we had a player that just had a long season, and they're like, you know what, I'm taking like eight weeks off. Um, maybe now I say, hey, you know what, let's let's spend some time. Maybe let's get three strength training sessions in. We'll still get our two sprint sessions in. Maybe we'll do a little more lateral stuff to work on that scene. You're not going to be on the court much at all. And then I might adapt and adjust because maybe I can fix some areas that they really need or or or. Uh, raise some low functioning areas that want because they played all the time maybe they lost some raw strength that they could that they could use so those are examples of in season and then out of season how you can manipulate love it great stuff and as far as recovery which you kind of uh mentioned a bit what guidelines you have uh, for us on recovery um you know general fundamental principles that maybe we should keep in mind that really impact our you know our quickness on the court and just overall performance so from i'm going to i'm going to hit a couple different topics here so the recovery things that we we don't always uh athletes and coaches don't always talk about is obviously sleep and and good nutrition. So if we can get those two down, so the sleep is going to say, okay, you did all this work. You learned a new serve today. You learned some new speed stuff and strength training. 
while you're sleeping and you're not bothering me, that's when I'm going to go to work. The brain saying, hey, now it's all me. I'm going to get rid of stuff that I don't need. And I'm going to store things that you showed me were pretty important today. This is why sleep is so vital. And these athletes who stay up till one in the morning on, on a computer or phone or whatever, and then get up really early, they miss that opportunity. The brain is like saying, I'm sorry, you didn't give me enough time. I have time. I need time to do my work, right? So if we can get that part, that's half the battle. Now, if we get proper nutrition and hydration, those two things can say, all right, you really tore me up today. So I need my protein to, to build back the, those tissues. And I need my carbohydrates or my fats or whatever to help cellular or whatever it is. So those are really important. Now, from the other standpoint of just um, mobility, when we do something as aggressive and as pounding as tennis, the joints get compacted. Uh, they get they get sometimes shifted because we put so much stress on certain muscles versus other muscles, and now we've got stress, and now the joints have shifted a little bit. We need to do some good quality mobility to start to reset. We need to be able to breathe. We breathing helps us reset posture. Um, and that's a whole other podcast we could do on breathing, but just they can easily learn how to breathe well to expand and be able to help themselves recover after workout. So those with, with sleep, with nutrition, with mobility, and then breathing are big things. Now, the last part I want to take is I'm going to talk about recovery while they're training and while they're playing. Mm. Most players don't realize they can they can lower their heart rate pretty quick and they re can recover fairly quick in between a long rally if they just had a really hard rally right to laugh back and forth and running a lot and, and now they'll have 20 seconds they got to get ready to go again so they need to be able to stop they need to be able to get breath they need to be able to get that carbon uh, dioxide out of their body and exhale but they need to be able to get oxygen flow again. So they need to be able to just stop and relax. Now, this is going to sound funny to a lot of people. People are going to think I'm crazy. But if you watch a track athlete, especially like your 400, 800 milers and up, when they finish, what's the first thing they do? They put their hands on their knees and they breathe. There's a reason for that. When that happens, they instantly get a release so that they can actually expand and breathe easier. There's not so much pressure on the diaphragm. It can open up. So even if a tennis player needed to just, even if they just put their hands on their knees for 10 seconds and breathe or whatever, that can help them recover. Now, I'm not saying they need to do that, but that is a strategy that I use with my athletes a lot. And a lot of coaches say, hey, look at, see, they're tired. No, we're not telling you. We're actually recovering better than you guys walking around with your hands on your head uh, and your ribs are now closed down and you're not breathing as well, right? So we teach them strategies like that that help them be able to recover uh, in between points. So I know that was a lot of stuff, but those are kind of areas that we try to focus on. No, it's amazing. Uh, really cool. I, I obviously did not know about, uh, you know, the last point you made about putting your hands on your knees uh, that actually helps you. So very cool. Very cool. Uh, I, I won't feel ashamed to do that next time. <laughs> no. Well, yeah. isn't it funny how when you watch someone that's really tight, that's what they do naturally, but yet we ignore it. But yeah. yet the, 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 <laughs> the body is telling you, look at, 
get me, get my diaphragm a relaxed position. And when you drop forward, it relaxes a little bit easier. So, yeah. Wow. Super neat. So Lee, uh, you know, I know a lot of what we talked about today stressed, uh, simplicity and the fact that you don't necessarily need, you know, crazy equipment to do these, uh, to train, uh, effectively and efficiently. But I was wondering if there are any particular tools that you, you might use with your athletes. You know, I've recently been looking into things like the, the whoop strap and the aura rings, you know, interesting pieces of equipment, but I was curious if there's anything that you suggest or use with your athletes. I you I'm again I'm I'm very simple and easy because mm-hmm. I can make adjustments and if athletes need them when they're away from me they can use them. So I like I like bands like you know the 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 looped bands that are like a big rubber band. Mm-hmm. I have a special kind that is a typical a typical band that you would see is 40 inches. Okay, the big rubber bands. I have some that are 80 and 110. Hmm. So I can I can do a lot more with the athletes. I can resist them further and I don't have to tie two of them together. I can do things like that. I love the bands. I'm a big medicine ball fan hmm. um, for various reasons. And then with strength training, like you had talked about rings and stuff, I like straps or like TRX. I don't hmm. use TRX directly i use a different kind just because they're a little bit smaller more versatile Mm. i can stuff them in my bag and travel called jungle gym straps and um i love things like that for tennis players because i can train their whole body very easily i can hook it up on a fence and do Mm. it right out there if i need to i can do it as a warm-up or after they just finished a session if i needed to i could do strength training right there on the tennis court before they're done and want to go home or or, uh, you know, go hit the shower or whatever. So, so those are basic things. The other thing I will say, I like using low boxes mm. or a low step. So I'm big at about two inches to three inches, sometimes up to four, but I, I like the low ones because I can do, I can do quick reactive jumps. I can do lateral movement over them, which we, which we have a whole sequence for, um, and they're, they're low expense. They're easy to do. Anybody can get them. Anybody can do them. You can build them. A lot of people just buy like a two by 10. They cut it at about 20 inches long. And, and then you put a little rubber mat on it. And there you go. You got one. It's real cheap. And I do a ton of stuff with my tennis players using, it's called low box training, what it is. And we do a lot of stuff uh, with those tools. Wow. Super neat. And, uh, Lee, you know, I, I obviously have, you know, researched what you're doing, but you know, with the bands, is that like your own product or is that just like something else that, that you bought? Yeah. It's something I bought. Yeah. Oh, okay. Are, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Yep. Cool. Cool. Yep. Um, very nicely. Um, you know, I did, we could talk for, for hours and, uh, I've, you know, I specifically really love uh, talking about fitness in relation to tennis. Um, and, uh, I just want to kind of educate the audience about what you're doing. You know, you have obviously a, a great website at leetaf.com if I have that correctly. So what type of, um, you know, coaching and consulting, uh, do you offer, you know, and do with athletes? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So prior to, um, COVID hitting was traveling a lot. I was, I would travel about 40 times a year. I was out of the country. I was in different States working with different organizations of different sports as well. Uh, and then once COVID hit, we pivoted and we do a lot of things online now. So I consult a lot online. I have, you know, 
just like everybody else, virtual training. We do things of that nature. Um, and I also do a lot of consulting with uh, coaches. So like mm -hmm. we help coaches learn how to do training online and stuff like that. Um, and, we're, and we're working a lot in the tennis industry on that. Um, and then we just recently released uh, the Certified Tennis Speed Specialist mm -hmm. course. Um, that's uh, ctss.co.co. That's something that we did, and it's a big course. It's 17 modules. It breaks down all the movements. That's something that coaches can use, athletes can use, directors of academies, things like that. So we're real proud of that. And that was the one thing that I noticed is from my years of being in tennis, no one really attacked the, the speed, like the models. How should we be teaching movements and how should we build systems around it? and things like that. So I wanted to do that for the tennis industry. So we created that this summer, actually, and that, that's been going really well. So those are places, and like you said, leetaf.com are places that they can learn more about what we're doing. Fantastic. Yeah, and we'll definitely link up to uh, the uh, certified, was it the certified speed specialist? Is that the right? Yeah, certified tennis okay, speed tennis specialist. Speed. Yeah, Beautiful. CTSS. Got it. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, I mean, for, for anyone listening, I mean, I know you're obviously extremely busy and, and, you know, it's awesome to hear. Do you do any, uh, do you, do you take like clients as well or are you currently like really booked with, with everything else? <laughs> yeah, I, I have a couple that I work with right okay. now. It, it, it funny thing. Here's the funny part. I've got two baseball players that I have right now and they're both from IMG. <laughs> uh, it, nice. it, it, what happened was, they knew I was down here when we moved and they had followed me over the years and they knew we were here. And so um, they asked if I would do stuff. So just, they don't come very often because they're obviously very busy there, but like um, one of the players needed help with uh, getting better for his 60 for the combine. So we just were helping them with that. And then another one actually was dealing with some back pain. So we're, we're trying to help them through some back pain stuff and uh, get them moving again. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, Lee, I mean, it, it's been a great, uh, great discussion. And uh, I was wondering um, if you were to recommend three books that you could give to uh, or that you would give to a friend to help them improve their speed. I was wondering, uh, you know, you obviously seem like a very learned individual, even uh, though I know a lot of it has come through, you know, sheer experience and, and learning from others. But are, are there any books out there that you would recommend to help our speed? Yeah, there's, um, so, so you've got, um, basic books like, um, uh, USA track and field. And the reason I mentioned that is because the foundation and the fundamentals of technique and running are good. So, so something simple like that, that is very good. Um, there's, there's, um, Gosh, I'm trying to think of the name. I can see the book. I've read them, and now you're now I'm caught without the you know, <laughs> think of the name of the book. But um, there's German textbook of speed is another one that is really really good that someone can get a lot of information out of. A German textbook for for sprinting is actually what it's called. is a really good book. Um, and then and then you've got guys out there that have done stuff like uh, or or people like uh, Exos which is a company that does a lot of good sprint work. Altus is another one that does a lot of good stuff. They're not necessarily books, but they're resources that mm. people can look at and uh, get some good information. 
probably the minute we stop this recording, everything will pop back yeah. in my head here, but uh, that's, that's usually the way it happens. Yeah. Um, Same here. But yeah, that's usually what happens. So there's a lot of good books that I've read. I've had so many of them, and I just can't recall the names of them at the top of my head here. Yeah, no, no worries. No worries. If you could um, erect a huge billboard in like the most highly trafficked city, you know, where you are right now or nearby, and you could put anything that you want on it uh, that, you know, a ton of people would see as they drive by or walk by, what what would you write on it? Man, you know, that might be one of the best questions I've <laughs> ever asked. That's a very <laughs> creative question. Um, I'll tell you. I am, the older I've gotten, the more my focus has been on um, uh, becoming a, a, like a mentor. Mm. Um, and, and I don't just mean people like, you know, you and I and coaches older than myself that have been around. I don't just mean people that have a lot of experience. I also mean kids mentoring other kids. And I, I, this is one of my foundational things that we teach a lot is I'm real big and there is nothing that makes us feel better. Like we all like to receive something. We like to receive input. We like to receive coaching, but the power of coaching somebody else or helping somebody else or teaching somebody else is, is incredibly powerful because you impacted a human and what that does for me. So if you coached me on something, and I did really well, and you were able to help me solve something, you're going to probably walk away feeling unbelievably good about yourself. And we need that. We need that right now. We need people in this country that right now we're having a tough time, right? As a nation, a lot of divisiveness, but Mm -hmm. the kids are getting it too. So on my billboard, I would say, teach someone, help Mm -hmm. somebody else, teach them, because I think it would raise morale of those who were teaching and that's going to make you feel better. And then the other people, then you just pass it on. So that's something that I spend a lot of time on. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. That's, it's excellent. Where can people connect with you? I know we mentioned uh leaftaft.com, but on social, any social accounts that you want to shout out? Yeah. Any, any of my social media accounts are pretty much at Lee Taft. So real simple, uh, just at my name. Um, and the, but those are the best ones to get me. My email where most people will reach out is just uh, simply my initials, LT at LeeTaft.com. That's so if people want to go directly to me, I always share my email. And, and I'm very good, even though sometimes it might take me a little bit, but I'm very good. I get back to everybody. I'm a, I'm a people person, so I never ignore anyone. Ah, it's very commendable. I'm sure uh, you get a lot and it can be tough sometimes, um, but that's great. Thanks, Lee. And one last question for you today, a classic question that I ask everybody, uh, and you've given us a lot of great advice today, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their speed on the court? Yeah, I, I would say probably one of the key things that they could do is to do drills that force them to be reactive. Mm. If we do what we call closed drills, where like I put a cone here and a cone here and we run in that cone, that's good. There's benefit to that. But if I can react, like if you were my coach and you tossed a tennis ball and I had to go run and catch that tennis ball before it bounced twice or something like that, that reactive speed not only helps my footwork and mechanics and all that, I can improve that. But the biggest thing it does as we, if we go all the way back to the beginning of this interview, we talked about reading, 
reacting, perceiving something, and then making a very quick decision, that's critical. That's That right there is one of the biggest things that I do to help athletes get faster on a court is I make them have to read, see something, and make a decision on how fast, what angle of pursuit they have to make to get there. I think that will help them as much as anything. Got it. Got it, Lee. Well, uh, I want to thank you a lot again for your time and, you know, just overall, um, you know, the passion that you bring to to this industry and, and, you know, helping people get faster and stronger and, you know, enjoy their sport more, um, and live a healthier lives. So really appreciate it. And, uh, really enjoyed chatting with you and hopefully we'll, we can do it again soon. And yeah, just, just really appreciate you being on the tennis files podcast. So thanks a lot, Lee uh, and everybody check out LeeTaft.com and, uh, at Lee Taft, uh, on his social media profiles. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks Lee. Yeah. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed this interview with Coach Lee Taft. And if you did, and if you feel like you got value from this episode and others, then I would really appreciate it if you leave a review for the podcast at Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. We just find that Apple Podcasts is the biggest mover in terms of visibility for the show and rankings and such. So uh, that one is preferred, but you know, any feedback on any platform is also fantastic. So I uh, also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Kim Collins. And Kim said, strive for continuous improvement instead of perfection. And this is what I talked about at the top of the show um, before the interview, just where I've been practicing my serve every morning and just trying to improve it. And by no means is it perfect, but the the feeling of improving is really, really exciting and, you know, keeps you going. So that that's always fun. And it applies to life as well, obviously, <laughs> not just tennis. So, all right, well, there you go. Don't forget that quote applied in, in your life and really appreciate you listening. And I'm looking forward to bringing you some fun interviews coming down the pipeline that I've arranged for. So uh, that's going to be exciting. All right, keep improving your tennis game. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is your host, Mirbon, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.